Lord, we get to look at how great he is. That is awesome. First Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. When you got it, say so. It says, Moreover, brethren, I declared to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures and that he was seen by Cephas then by the twelve after that he was seen by over 500 brethren at once of whom the greater part remain to the present but some have fallen asleep after that he was seen by James then by all the apostles then last of all he was seen by me also as by one born out of due time for I am the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God but by the grace of God I am what I am and his grace toward me was not in vain but I labored more abundantly than they all yet not I but the grace of God which was with me Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Lord, we thank you so much for your truth, your truth that liberates us, your truth that delivers us, my God, from incorrect mindsets, that liberates us from sin. We thank you for your word, Lord God, that is inspired for us. Father, I ask you today that even as I share in your word, Father God, that you would give each of us that are here ears to hear what your spirit is saying to your church. God, I pray that you would resensitize our heart to this essential truth. God, I ask you, Lord, against every distraction of the enemy. Father, may our minds be captive by your spirit today. And Lord, I pray that we would all leave here changed as a result of your word. We thank you for this, Father. We give you praise and glory. In Jesus' mighty name, someone said, you may be seated in the presence of the Lord. That is an important truth for us to have. And when we look at the scriptures, we find that there, that there are some things that are absolutely essential. We can lose focus. And I want to let you know that obviously we are living in a day, we are living in an hour, we are living in a time in which we are, you know, our values are being challenged. We're living in a time where, you know, we got, we, we're, 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 we're being tested all the time, not only just in the hour, we live in just in general as we go through daily life, as we go through situations and circumstances. Our values are being tested. What, what, what is valuable to us? What really matters? What really matters in, in the day and hour that we live in? The, 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 the Corinthian church was similar to, to us in, in that way, that they were losing focus on some things. They were very religious people. 
When you read the book of 1 Corinthians, you'll find something. And it's amazing because I noticed that as I was reading this, I realized where chapter 15 is found. And the reason why this is important for us to understand a little bit of history on this book is because this is the first the first full explanation or full disclosure of the gospel that was written. Now, just to, just to, just to give a little bit of understanding, what I mean is the book of 1 Corinthians was written around 50, 55 A.D., and so we're looking at about 50 years after Christ had died, resurrected, and gone to heaven. When you look at all of the other books that are dated in the New Testament, you'll find something that this is probably around the third or fourth book that was written in the New Testament. Why is this important? Because it was written before all of the Gospels except maybe one, and that would have been the book of Mark. This is important because when Paul breaks down this Gospel, he's given the first representation or, or the first presentation clearly and the fullest presentation of the Gospel. He's explaining what this is, and it's important for us to see this. Because what he's doing is he's communicating to a church, people that have been saved. As a matter of fact, when you read chapter 12, and this is what amazes me, when you read chapter 12, you find that he was speaking to them about what? The gifts of the Spirit, right? That's what chapter 12 is all about. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 deals with the gifts of the Spirit. He goes from dealing with the gifts of the Spirit to then speaking about love. Chapter 13 talks about love. Then in chapter 14, he talks about how do we bring all of this together? How do we bring these gifts together and this love together? And how do we edify? one another as we come together as a body. How do we operate in love? He communicates that. Then after all of that stuff that he goes through with these people, then he stops and he says, moreover, brethren, I declare to you. Because what seemed to have happened here was that these people became enamored with the gifts of the Spirit. They became overwhelmed with the power that God was manifesting in their midst, but they were losing sight or losing focus on what really mattered. I want to be filled with the power of God. Truth. You should desire God. I cry that out every day of my life. I want to be full of his power, but it's not for my glory. It's so that way I can preach his gospel with power. So that way I can be an effective witness for his gospel. When we look at this, I love it. Um, we, you know, a sister was, was, wrote to me a, a while back, and she was talking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And she said, you know, Bishop, for so many years I grew up in the church. And as I grew up in the church, I grew up in a Pentecostal church. And these people, they were communicating to me about how important it was to speak in tongues. And they were pushing us and make you got to speak in tongues, got to speak in tongues, got to speak in tongues. Not because of anything else, just because you got to speak in tongues because of the gifts of the Spirit. And you have to do it. She communicated this. She said she was overwhelmed a lot of her life because she never experienced that. And she thought there was something wrong with her. And she sat there and she wrote me like five pages, email type. And it wasn't like, you know, five pages in 14 font. It was like five pages in 10 font, glory to God. So when I, when, I mean, I 14 pages, like five pages in that 10. I mean, it was serious. There was a lot of writing going in. It wasn't a whole bunch of paragraphs, you know, like skipping two lines to make it. No, 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 none of that stuff. It was just like a ramble of typing, glory to God. And just came out and just wrote their heart. And she was saying, she said, you know, Bishop, as I study the scriptures, I realized something. She said, I realized that the purpose of the baptism of the Holy Spirit is not for our experience, but it's for our expression. It's not for us to experience this thing. It is for us to go out and be witnesses. The emphasis was not on the tongues. The emphasis was not on the gifts. The emphasis that Jesus made was wait in Jerusalem until you are endued with power so you can be my witnesses. And I believe this is just my belief. I'm just going to throw this out there. I believe the reason why he had to tell his disciples to wait is because he knew how excited they were going to be because you know what? You walked with us for three years. We thought it was dead. We thought it was over. You resurrected. We want to go tell the world. And Jesus said, wait a minute. You need to be filled with power in order to go forward and be my witnesses. 
They were, they were motivated to get out there and share the gospel. They were motivated. And what happens is we have to realize how important the gospel is to our lives, especially when we're in the midst of different situations and different circumstances. So we read this scripture here, and when the apostle is communicating to them, he's telling them this, he's, he's talking to them, and as I deal with essentials, the title of this message is of first importance, because if we're going to deal with essentials, the most and you can write this down next to chapter 15. You can put it there. You know, in some Bibles, you're going to have a little title, a little, a little title in there at the top of that chapter. It'll say the risen Christ, face reality. Listen, if you're not afraid to write in your Bible and you have a pen, I'm going to ask you to write next to there the most important thing of first importance. The most important thing is right here. Whenever you lose focus, whenever you're going through whatever, whenever situations are arising, the most important thing is what the Apostle Paul communicates right here. The most important news that we can get. As Christians, we must constantly remind ourselves of what really matters and what is truly the most important news flash that we would keep in our hearts and remember that we have been saved from the wrath of God to come. Understand, that is the most important truth for a Christian. The most important truth is the gospel. Hear me. The most important truth is the gospel. And so if you don't get any other message that I preach in the rest of this year, and listen to me, this is like the third Sunday of the year, get this one. You might be visiting. If you never come back to this church, get this message. This is the one that is the most important that I'll ever preach in my life. I believe this. And I'm not saying I will only preach this once, but I will preach this continually. But this is the most important truth for a Christian. As a Christian, the Apostle Paul speaking to this church and he's communicating to them, he's talking to them, and he goes, and we'll read beginning in verse 1. And he says, first of all, he says, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which you also received and in which you stand. Repeat this after me. We must understand the way the gospel works. The first thing that we see here is, he says, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you, and I want you to understand when he, when he says that word, I declare to you. I have the Amplified Bible, and it's in my office, and I don't have it, but I, I, I can't read it to you right now. But when the Apostle Paul, in, in a different translation, it says, I remind you. And I, and, and I was like, why, why is it that my translation says, you know, I make known to you? Like, and, and, and really, if you look at it in its context, it's kind of like dumb to say, hey, I'm making something known to you, but I've been talking to the church for the last 14 chapters, okay? So what he's saying is, I'm reminding you since it seems to have escaped you. I'm reminding you. I'm bringing you a reminder. That's the context in which the apostle is speaking here. And you will see throughout the New Testament, the apostle Paul is constantly reminding the different churches that he's writing to about one thing, the grace of God. He is constantly reminding them about the grace of God. When he writes to the Galatian church, they were getting religious. They were getting all this way, and they were going back into legalism. And he says, hold on a second. I need to remind you of the grace of God. And so what he's doing is he is giving this church a reminder because it is easy. Hear me now. It is easy. you got to realize this is only 50 years. This is the very apostle Paul himself that is writing these people. You want to talk about a powerful preacher? You want to talk about a powerful minister? This this was him. This was the man that was writing to them and communicating. So listen to me now. If it was possible for them to get their mind off of or to forget. Thank you. Hallelujah. I'll read it to you from the Amplified. It says, and now let me remind you since it seems to have escaped you. 
Let me remind you, because it's easy for that stuff to get out of our mind. We start going through problems, we forget about the gospel. We start going through situations, we forget about the gospel. We start going through circumstances, we forget about the gospel. The apostle is writing to them, telling them, hey, you got to remember this. And the first thing that he tells them, he tells them the gospel which, and he goes on to say, I declare to you, the gospel which I preach to you. Say, I preach to you. So the first thing we got to understand here about how the gospel works, the gospel must be preached. Tell your neighbor, neighbor, the gospel must be preached. The gospel must be preached. So the first way that it works has got to be preached. In other words, you can't just think it into reality in someone's life. Hello. You can't, you, you, listen, you, you know that I'm devoted to prayer. You know that I want, yes, and, but you know what? You cannot just pray the gospel into someone's life. Oh, you don't want to say, Bishop, you crazy. No, I'm not crazy. Turn to Romans chapter 10 with me real quick. I'm going to show you how crazy I'm not. Hello. I want to give you some word because it it's not just my words. Hello. It's his words that we need to be concerned with, right? Look at this. This, this is amazing. Romans chapter 10, you got it? Verse 14. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? I didn't say it. The text said it. Without a preacher, the gospel is not heard. So the first thing, and we can go back there to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Go back over there because we're going to go through this exegetically. Glory to God. And look over it all together. The first thing he says, the gospel must be preached. So what does that mean? That means that the gospel must be communicated. Let me deliver you because when I say the gospel must be preached, it does not mean that you have to get up on a pulpit and preach the word of God. That, that, that's not what that means. Pulpits are relatively new. Hello, somebody. And, and, and when you look at all the religious history, listen, this wasn't a way. It, it wasn't like that. So thank God for microphones and all that good stuff. I, you know, praise the Lord. for. But, it, but, but that is not what it means. That is not what I'm saying, that you got to get up here and become. Nope. You need to be a voice communicating the gospel. So if the gospel needs to be communicated, that means the gospel must be heard. Hello. The gospel must be heard by somebody. So it works through you by you communicating. It works in someone else through them hearing. They have to hear the gospel. They need to hear the gospel presentation. He goes on to say the next part there in, in, in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. I preach to you, which you also receive. Pause for a moment. Say the gospel must be received. If the gospel is going to work in someone's life, they have to receive it. They have to receive. What does that word receive mean? It means to join to oneself. In other words, it means to acknowledge its necessity in my life and commit to it. To receive the gospel is saying, I realize that I need this for my life. I realize that I need something. Whatever you are communicating, I need that. Not only do I need it, but I'm going to commit to it. When I first became a Christian, there was something I, I, I was, I, I remember walking after a Bible study one night, and I said, you know, you got to be able to accept the word of God, receive the word of God, and apply the word of God if the word of God is going to make any difference in your life. And so what did I mean by that? Well, I don't know. The Holy Spirit put that in my heart. But what I realized later on when I thought about it and I wrote it down, it was that you first and foremost have to accept the word of God as truth. Say it with me. You have to accept the word of God as truth. 
If you don't accept the word of God as truth, it's not going to make any type of difference in your life. If it's just another story, if it's just another history book that could be right or could be wrong, the gospel, the word of God is going to make no difference in your life. So the first thing you have to do is you have to accept that the word of God is true. So before we go on, I want us to look at some things here that the apostle Paul is communicating. Go down with me to verse to, to verse 3, and we're going to go from verse 3 reading down. And I want to show you how we know the truth of this word. And it says in ver- from verse 3, it says, For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again, and the third day according to the scriptures. Okay, so first of all, we have two witnesses here he's already given us. The first witness is the gospel which you received, so it's the way that you were touched by the gospel. And in, your, in, in our situation, in many cases, not every single case, but in some cases, when you heard the gospel, you heard the message of the cross, you heard the message of your sin, when you heard that communicated, something happened inside of you, maybe tears ran down your face, something was moving, and so there was something that occurred. Why? Because there was power in the gospel. His second witness that he gives us about the truth of this gospel that he's speaking of is he says, according to the scriptures, everything that has happened, so the first witness is your experience that he gives there. He's not saying that's the first witness, but he's and the first witness he's talking about in this chapter is your experience. You're Christians. You decided to change your life. You decided to turn away from Judaism. You decided to turn away from the way that you were being. You decided to turn away from all of these things. Therefore, there's an experience. The scriptures are there, which is what was preached to you. So they were communicating the second witness that is given in this chapter. He continues on to say in verse 5, and he had, and, and that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. So read from verse 4. Look at verse 4. It says, and that he was buried, right? That he rose again, and the, the third day, according to the scriptures, again, another witness, the scriptures prophesied that he would rise. And then, verse 5, he said, and that he was seen by Cephas, who was also Peter, then by the twelve. So he's going on ahead. He gives us three witnesses so far. He says to us, clearly, first witness, your experience. Second witness, the scriptures here. Third witness are people who were eyewitnesses, people who saw what happened, people who, who were there. Verse 6. And this, and that he, after that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. Now look, 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 look what, he's, what he's communicating here. He's saying this. He's saying, listen, you had an experience when you heard the gospel preached to you. The scriptures prophesied about him dying and resurrecting. And there were 500 people who saw him at one time alive. And those people, most of them are still alive. Now listen, that's a pretty bold statement. You go and you tell somebody, that, that, that's like telling someone, hey man, I love this restaurant over here. And the restaurant is still there. They have the best whatever. Let's say you, you, you love chicken wings. We'll just use that for an example. Oh, you all are hungry right now. Uh-huh. You love wings? Man, I, I ain't ever had better wings than these over here. You communicate that, that takes some nerve because you're saying, yeah, I really believe this, right? I really believe what I'm saying. Well, this is even greater than just some chicken wings. Hello, somebody. This is the resurrected Savior. And what Paul is saying, he's saying, listen, it is important. It is important for you to realize that you had an experience, the scriptures prophesied it, and if, and, and if your experience and what the scriptures say don't, don't do it for you, go talk to those 500 people that saw Jesus. That way you can confirm what I'm telling you. So he gives them all of these witnesses and he communicates. So here we go. Right here we say, okay, you know what? Then I got to accept this as the truth. This is the truth. We could go through other things that will prove the scriptures, but I'm not going to do that. That's enough for this context right here. But the fact of the matter is that the truth has got to be accepted. 
Then you have to receive it. When I say receive it, it means that I have to personally respond to it. Say to receive it, I have to personally respond to it. In other words, it's not something that he needs, she needs, they need. It's something I need. So you accept the word of God, you receive the word of God, and then you apply the word of God. That's self-explanatory, right? That means that you now live the word of God, the preaching or the teaching that you heard. You now live it. You now enter into a relationship with Jesus based upon what the scriptures teach. The Bible, the, the, the gospel also, he goes on to say, continuing on in verse 1 here, go back to verse 1, please. It says, moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preach to you, so it has to be preached, which also you received, it must be received, and in which you stand. Continuing on, by which also you are saved. We're going to skip that line because I'll get to that in a moment. If you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And so say this with me. The gospel must be stood in and held on to. In other words, the gospel must become our strength that we stand on. It must become our hope that we're looking forward to. It must become the thing, the faith that we stand upon, looking forward to eternity without wavering. He says, this gospel saved you if you hold fast to it, unless you believed in vain. If you're holding fast to this gospel, it saved you. But if not, then maybe you believed in vain. This, this is what the apostle is communicating. So as we hear the gospel, right, as we, as we receive the gospel, as we stand in the gospel, and as we hold on to the gospel, we are saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved by the grace of God. Now, I want you to think about this for a moment. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but most of us in here would probably raise our hand if I asked the question, how many of you are saved? But I would like for you to think about the answer to the question I'm going to ask you now. What is it you're saved from? Because when you are out there sharing the gospel with people and you're talking to them about their need for Jesus, one of the biggest questions that I've heard people ask, what, what, what do I need to be saved from? What do I need to be saved from? So think about your answer for that. Some of you have the answer. You're like, I got that one, Bishop. That was an easy one. Praise the Lord. But for the rest of us that are like, well, what am I saved from? You saved from a bad marriage? You saved from financial issues? Is that what we're saved from? You're saved from sickness. That's it? Is that what I'm saved from? What am I saved from? Because when I present the gospel to people, I have to be faithful with my presentation of what I'm telling them they're going to be saved from. Because what happens if I tell a person who's going through a bad marital situation, yeah, God is going to save your marriage, and God doesn't save their marriage. What happens? I lied to them. Hello? So what am I saved from? What happens if somebody comes to me and they're sick and I say, well, you know, my God can heal you and he's going to heal you, guaranteed, no, there's no question asked, and God decides not to heal them. What happens then? I lied to them. So what are we saved from? Think about this. What is it that I am saved from? I know, I know we don't want to talk about that. And you know why it's so hard for some of us to figure it out? And I'm going to be totally honest with you. I knew I was saved because, you know, I know what God did in my life. I had the experience, experience, I believe, the scriptures. And years ago, I remember sitting down and I was like, you know, trying to, you know, think about witnessing or not think about I was witnessing. And, you know, a person asked me this question. What am I saved from? And you know what? We don't even talk about what we're saved from. We are saved from hell, church. We are saved from the wrath of God, Period. That is what we're saved from. And the apostle is communicated to them, listen, if you hold fast to this, this is, this is what, you are saved. 
So you are saved from the wrath of God. Well, I said that you're saved, that you are being saved, and that you are going to be saved. So that sounds kind of crazy in and of itself. But the fact of the matter is, we're saved, right? We're, we're, we're given this new life. We're given this new name, new righteousness before God. And then we are continually walking. That's where the holding fast part comes in. We are continually being sanctified, being changed. by. That's what happens when you become a Christian. You may feel, and, and I'll just say it like this because I felt this way too. You may feel when you meet Jesus because you have such a newness in your life, you have such a newness in your heart that everything is perfect in your life that you have arrived. You may feel that way. But I want to let you know, five years down the road, as you're walking with Jesus, you're going to look back and be like, wow. And when you look back and you don't realize, wow, somebody who was there five years ago is going to communicate to you, boy, you had a lot to grow. Did you hear what I just said? Because it is a continual process. It is a continual process that we walk in. And then I will be saved. What does that mean? That means that at the end of all of this, at the end of all of this, and this is what we look forward to as Christians, at the end of all of this, I am either going to be called up by the sound of a trumpet or I am going to die and go to meet the Lord. And guess what? Then I am saved completely. No longer do I experience the suffering of flesh. No longer do I feel the temptation of flesh. No longer do I experience any of the heartache that comes with the flesh. No longer do I go through any of that, but I have been saved and delivered to where there is no more weeping there is no more there is no more sorrow there is no more anything there is just glory this is what the gospel is about this is what god wants to save us from this is what he wants to communicate to us and, and according to paul not according to me according to him it is possible for us to believe in vain it is possible for us to believe in vain and there's two ways that we believe in vain it is, number one, that we do not hold completely to all of the truth that is in the gospel. Or, number two, that we believe a different gospel. Hear me. It is one or the other. Either we didn't hold to all of the truth that is in the gospel. We didn't hold to our responsibility within this. We didn't hold to God's promises within this. We don't hold, and that's what the problem was right here specifically. The, the, the church was struggling with the resurrection of the dead. They were struggling with this resurrection. Oh, you know, yeah, we believe Jesus resurrected, but, you know, us being resurrected, no, nah, I, I don't know about all that. That's part of the gospel. The resurrection of the dead to life, right? That's part of the gospel. They weren't holding on to the hope of glory, right? They, they, weren't, they weren't holding on to, hold on a second. You believed in vain then. If there is no hope, if there, if there was no hope in the future, you believed in vain. He, if, 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 glory to, if you read, you, you continue to read as, as, as the Apostle Paul communicates, and he says, man, if our hope is only in the things now, you are the most damnable of people. In other words, if, all, if your only hope, if your only hope is that everything's going to be all right when Jesus enters my life. Mm -mm. First of all, that's not the true gospel. I, let, me, let me tell you something. I want to tell you right now, I love Pastor Chad. Glory to God. Can we just give the Lord a hand of praise for Pastor Chad? I love this brother. And, I, and, I, and he, he, to me, I, I'm just going to say this, all right? I, I love everybody in this church, okay? But this brother right here, he, had, he, he came to me, and, and, you know, and, and we, you know, we teach becoming a contagious Christian, how to share the faith and a friendship, relationship, blah, 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 and all this stuff, right? And he's like, Bishop, you got to see this way of the master. You got to see this way of the master. You got to see this way of the master. And I'm like, strong, I'm like, man, look, man, I'll look at it later on. I'll look at it later on. I know how to share the gospel, yada, yada, yada. Man, I started teaching the way of the, way of the master on Wednesday nights, and let me tell you something. My life has been changed. Listen, I want you to understand something. The way of the master and becoming a contagious Christian are like two polar opposites, absolutely 100%. 
But the one thing that I appreciate and that, was, that is driven home so clearly when you look at the presentation of the gospel is that we need to make sure we are presenting the right gospel. That we are presenting the gospel that delivers people from hell and delivers people from their sin. That we are not presenting them a gospel that is just going to fix everything. Because the reality is, life is better with Jesus, but life doesn't always get better when Jesus enters in. Hear me now. Listen. Life is always better with Jesus, okay? When you, got, when you are walking, well, you could be going through hell and it's better because you got him. Hello. But it doesn't mean the hell is going to change. The hell that's changed for sure is eternal hell. Glory to God. That's the hell that you're not going to experience. The Bible promises us tribulation. And the fact of the matter is, that, and, and, and this is the reason why it just like woke me up in, in, in such a great way. It's because there was a, a statistic that they gave. And they said, here's the thing. You've heard about how many people are getting saved, how many people are coming to Christ and all of this stuff. And they said in one denomination, in one year, they, they, they proclaimed that they, they saw like 85,000. Listen to the number I just said. Like 85,000 converts. When they went and followed up to see how many people were actually in the church, you want to know how many they found? 14,000. That's a big difference, isn't there? 85,000 people gave their life to Jesus. We can only find 14,000 of them in fellowship. There's a problem with that. And you know what? He said this. He said this so clearly. It's not an issue with follow-up. It's an issue with presentation of the gospel. It's an issue with presentation of the gospel. People don't even know what they're walking away from. They don't even know what God is saving them from. And so it is imperative for us to understand the true gospel because if not, we can believe in vain. We can believe with, 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 with no fruit in our lives. We can hear the wrong gospel or present the wrong gospel. The second point that I'd like for you to say, say this with me, say the gospel must remain of first priority. In verse 2, in verse 3, he says this. He says, for I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received. And so the apostle Paul, just like his hearers, he had to receive the gospel as well. He received the gospel through divine revelation. Jesus met him on the road to Damascus. He had an experience with God. He was changed and transformed. He was a religious person. He was a person that was spiritual. He was a person that had all of these moral standards. And you know what? He still needed Jesus. Did you hear what I just said? He was a moral person. He was a person who, you, well, I, I was a keeper of the law. I never broke. I mean, Paul was the man. He was the Pharisee of Pharisees. He was, I mean, he kept the law. He was the one. He spirit, had spiritual experiences. And still, he needed to receive the gospel. But the first thing he says there in that verse, he says, for I delivered to you first of all. When you look at that word first of all, it doesn't give it the right heart and what it's supposed to communicate. And what he's really saying is I delivered to you of first importance. The first thing that I communicated to you when I came to you, I didn't tell you about gifts of the Spirit. I didn't tell you about all of these other things. I talked to you about the gospel. I preached to you the gospel. I communicated to you this gospel. This is what I communicated to you. And so it is important for us as Christians to challenge ourselves with regard to the gospel being of first priority in, my, in our lives. We must ensure that we are truly living for the gospel, church. Jesus is the gospel, amen? amen, that we are truly <clears throat> living for that gospel, that we are truly living, that the gospel is that the same way that the apostle put first priority, that we do it. Why is this so important for us? It's important for us because it is easy for us church folk, us Christian folk, to go on ahead and lose sight of the gospel in all kind of relationships. We can forget what we're living for. 
We can lose sight of the gospel in our parenting, man. We can lose sight of what, what, what is the most important thing. Is the most important thing that my child goes to some Ivy League college or is it that my child knows Jesus? Did you hear what I just said? What is the most important thing? For me as a parent, to make sure that my child goes to an Ivy League college, that my child experiences this, that my child is not going to have. And and, and listen, some of us had some horrible childhoods. We were broke. We were messed up. And we don't want our children to live like that. But you know what was the worst part of my teenage years is that I did not know Jesus. And what I don't want is my daughter to have to go through her teen years without Jesus. Can I force her to walk with Jesus? Absolutely not. But can I live a life that represents Jesus? Absolutely. Can I share with her the gospel from an early age? Absolutely. Can I make sure that I'm leading her in the right way? Absolutely. Can I make sure the TV's not raising her? Absolutely. Can I make sure that even when it hurts me, I still discipline her because I'm teaching her how to, be, how to do things in an honorable and right way? Absolutely, church. But we can lose sight of these things. We can lose sight of the gospel in our, in, in our parenting relationship. In our marriages, we can lose sight of the gospel. In, other, in, in our work environment, we can lose sight of the gospel. We get so motivated and so encouraged to do what? To make, it, make the next promotion, to get to the next payment range, to get to that next place. We can be so motivated to get there that we forget about being the representative of Jesus Christ that we're supposed to be. It is easy for us to lose sight. And so we have to be faithful to challenge ourselves. We have to be faithful to check ourselves and say, you know what? I really need to evaluate. Is the gospel really first place in my life? Is it really first priority in my life? Do I live my life more concerned with making sure that people know Jesus? Or do I live my life more concerned with other things? Think about it. It's a tough question. But realistically, what is your greatest concern in life? What is the greatest, I mean, what is your greatest concern as a Christian? First priority has to be the gospel. It has to be to know him and to share him. It has to be that for a Christian because I have to question myself. If the gospel is not first in my life, I need to ask myself a question. Have I ever really met the Savior? If the gospel is not first in my life, have I ever really met Jesus? Have I ever really met him? Have I ever really encountered him? If it's not first in my life, if someone else is first in my life, do I really know him? If something else is first in my life, do I really know him? That's the question that we have to ask ourselves this morning. The third thing that I think is so important is that the gospel, repeat it with me, please. The gospel must be understood before it can become our motivation. He says in verse 3, he says, For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. And so the gospel must be understood before we are able or or before it's going to become the motivation in our life. And so let's talk about the gospel because I'd be amiss to go on ahead and talk about how important the gospel is and never speak about it in its fullness. The first thing we have to understand about the gospel is that the gospel begins with God being holy. Creator of all things. Say that with me. The gospel begins with God being holy. Creator of all things. That's where we start. In the Garden of Eden, there's something that occurs. Something happens in the Garden of Eden. He puts Adam and Eve in there. Tells them you can eat of everything except this tree. What happens? The serpent comes to them and tells them, well, God doesn't want you to eat from that because you'll become like God. So really what was happening? They were trying to become God in the garden. That's what was occurring. They were trying to become God. 
They were saying, you know what, man, he's trying to hold something back from us. We, we, we want to become God. If we can become like God, then we can become God. We can rule. We can reign without him. We don't need him, right? So this is what happens in the garden. So in the garden, the, 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 the God, God the creator creates all of these things, creates man, puts him in this garden, tells him to work the land, tells him all these things. Man is in there. He decides he's going to listen. They decide they are going to listen to the serpent, and then they go on ahead, and they eat of this fruit. They eat of the fruit. And what happens? Sin enters the world. Because of their disobedience, the scripture shows us, because of their disobedience, something occurs. God said, you will surely die. So what did they do? God gave them a promise. He said, look, you will surely die. They eat of this fruit, the promise enters in. Death now enters into the scene. They weren't, they weren't supposed to die. They weren't created to die. That wasn't God's purpose. They eat of the fruit, they bring the curse, they, they bring in this promise, they bring in the curse of sin upon humanity. So then what happens is, after years, there was promise made in the beginning about this child. Promise made after promise after promise after promise regarding Jesus, regarding his coming, regarding him living this perfect life, regarding him being born of a virgin, regarding him dying and suffering in our place, regarding him resurrecting. So after all of these promises, Jesus has to come. After all of these years of sacrifice, Jesus comes. And so what happens is God becomes man and he dies. God adds to his divinity what? Humanity. This is what happens. God comes into the scene. He says, man will never become God. That is impossible. All the gurus trying to do that, trying to communicate that, trying to bring you to another level of enlightenment. It will never happen. You will never be good enough to be God. You will never be wise enough to be God. You will never be strong enough to be God. Therefore, me as God, I have to come down to your level, put on your flesh, and I have to live a perfect life, condemn sin in the flesh, and then I have to die in your place. I have to die in your place because you're a sinner. This is what he says. He dies. So we look at this, we, we look at the scriptures and we know that as we look at the scriptures in this gospel presentation, when we see it throughout the gospels that are written, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we see that Jesus comes and as he enters into this time that, it, it, you know, his, his final hours on this earth, he enters in and he goes and he sits down with his disciples breaks bread with them, washes their feet, communicates all of these things about, listen, where I'm going, you cannot come, communicates to them, you know, about them, them doing this last supper that we do the, the last Sunday of every month at 10 o'clock in the morning, which I hope to change pretty soon. But anyway, the fact of the matter is that we see very clearly what Jesus does in the middle of this meal the devil enters the heart of one of his disciples. His disciple goes away, betrays him. Jesus goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. He goes in there in agony of soul, begins to cry out to the Father, Father, take this cup from me. Not my will, but your will be done. He's abandoned. He is left by himself because what? Because his friends who he said, listen, I need you to come pray with me, they decided they were going to take a nap because they were sorrowful. Because their hearts were broken, they decide, well, you know what? We're just going to go ahead and we're, we're just going to go to sleep. We're going to take a nap. You know how it is. I told you the story before. You know, you, 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 you ever got spanked when you were a kid? And the last thing you remember was, <gasps> and then you woke up. You cried yourself to sleep. Hello. You were in agony of behind, not soul. Hello. You were hurting, right? Couldn't believe you got whooped like that. Well, the disciples, they were feeling the same agony of soul. They were feeling the same type of brokenness, right? So this is what was happening. Jesus goes into the garden of Gethsemane. When he goes into this garden, the scripture says, this is at night now. This is not during the day. 
He's in there in the garden. After he prays those three times, gets up. My accuser comes, and, you know, my betrayer comes. He gets up. Judas does what? Gives him a kiss on the cheek, betrays him. The high priest and all these people take him. They do a fake. <laughs> they, 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 they take him, and, 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 they, and they do this fake trial with him because it wasn't real. That's why they did it at night because they were cowards. Hello. They couldn't do it during the day because during the day, well, there would have been a whole bunch of folk that were there. A whole bunch of people that would have said, no, that's not true. He didn't say that. He didn't do that. So they had to do it at night so they could condemn him. So after they condemn him, then they finally get him to the place where what? Where he is now going to go before Pilate and he is going to be crucified. This is what's going to happen. But there's something that occurs before he's crucified because it's not just that he is crucified. It's not just that, but he is flogged. This is the truth. The truth is most people died from the flogging. Most people didn't make it. And this is my opinion. I think the only reason that Jesus made it is because them 30 years of him being a carpenter, I think he was pretty healthy. Hello. On a physical level. I mean, obviously we know the grace of God, so let's not put that out of there. But his physical ability to take that beating. So Jesus comes into this, in, in, into this place that he's going to be beaten. And you got to realize that they were just wanting, the, the religious people hated him. And they wanted to make sure that he was an example. That anybody who followed him, this is going to be your destiny. You follow his teaching, this is where you're going to end up. And so rather than me stand here and try to preach this to you, I decided that I'm going to show you a video. And I want you to see this because I believe that this is the most clear depiction of what a flogging really is in Jesus' life. And I want to tell you this. My daughter pointed this out to me. It was, it, it was pretty funny. I haven't let her watch this movie. And especially I asked her, I asked, you want to watch it? She's like, no. She looked at the back. She said, Daddy, it's rated R. And I said, yeah, the cross was rated R. It was probably rated X because he was probably naked. So the best we could do in order to give honor to God is to do a rated R movie. But the fact of the matter is, when you look at the cross, the cross is very graphic. And so if anybody has young children in here that you don't want them to see this, this is rated R and this is very graphic and this will traumatize a child. And I'm hoping that it wakes us up so we can understand because we talk about the gospel. And I love what, what, what Mark Driscoll says. He says, we say the scripture, Christ died too fast. Christ died for me. And we move on with life. I want you to see what that really looked like. And the only thing is, I want you to realize this. Obviously, when Jesus was going through this, all the background music wasn't there. It was quiet. Nonetheless, the beating was just, was probably more graphic than what we're about to see. But I want you to look at this, and then I'll come back and talk for a moment. I was listening to the interview, and the person who played Jesus, he said, it's hard to look at. I love what he said. He said, the reason why it's so hard to look at is because that's you dealing with your sin. See, what we have to understand is that what we saw there and how gruesome that is, that's real. Nothing that I could do to explain the crucifixion would do that justice because when, he, when, when Paul or anybody said he was crucified, they understood what a crucifixion was like because they saw them. They knew the brutality. When, when it said Jesus was flogged, we don't understand that. And all of that was for your sin. All of that was for my sin. Look at the scriptures. The scriptures say, and Jesus died for our sins. When you're looking at this picture, that's what God thinks about sin. 
That's God's perspective of sin. He hates it. He was willing to allow his son to endure that for our sin. And we have to understand that because the first part of the gospel that we talked about, which is everything that God is holy and he is just and he is righteous, all of that, very important for us to grasp. But we also need to understand a very another, uh, another part that's very important, and it is that he did it for our sins. He did it for you. He did it for me. Little white lies on the cross. Notice that beating didn't look any less for a little white lie than a big lie that you consider big. See, when we look at the cross, we have to understand it was for me. He died for me, for my sins. We have to grasp the reality that we are not good. See, people have this mindset. Well, I am not that bad. Yes, you are. Oh, I'm not, I'm not, I'm, I'm not, I'm not as big of a sinner as someone else. Yes, you are. On the cross, it was all the same. As Pastor Robert says, the playing field was level. On the cross, all the same. Every sin, whatever it is, it's the same. Not just the sins that we commit, the sins that we omit. Because right away, we start thinking, well, I, I'm not doing this. I'm not doing that. I'm not doing the next thing. Well, what about what you're not doing? Because automatically when we think of sin, we think of it, well, it's just what I'm doing. No, there are sins of omission. James says that he who knows what is right and does not do it, it is sin to him. So when we're not doing what we're supposed to be doing, when we're not honoring God, when we're not praying, you know, those things, when we're not seeking him, look, how about this? If we're commanded to share the gospel, how about that? When we don't share the gospel, is that sin? Yes, that's sin. That sin of omission, when I'm not loving my wife the way that I should, that is sin of omission. When I am not respecting my husband, not me, but you as a woman, when you are not respecting your husband the way that you should be, that is a sin of omission. This is what the Bible commands. And the reason why we need to grasp that, the reason why I didn't want to get up here, listen, I watched that scene over and over again so I wouldn't be bawling when I stood up here. Because I couldn't hold it together when I was sitting down there. But there's something that you have to understand. Before we get all sobby and emotional about this, we have to deal with the reality. That was our sin that put him on that cross. And until that becomes down deep in your spirit, you will not change your ways. Until you understand that you did that to him, until I understand that I did that to him, I will continue to live a life halfway for God. I will continue to live a life that is not fully devoted to him. I will not truly receive the gospel and make it part of me. I will not do that until I understand that I am a sinner. The Bible says he died for our sins. And when you think about that, how is that good news? How's that good news? Because of the same thing. He died for our sins. He died for my sins. See, there's the negative to this, which is it was for your sins. But there's also the positive. It was for your sins. He died for your sins. He died for every one of those sins that you commit. He doesn't hold it against you if you have repented and come before him. He died for your sins. He died for my sins. 
He died for your sins. He, he went through all of that for our sin. I put him on that cross, but he got up on that cross. You saw what he told Pilate. He said, you don't take my life from me. You don't have power except the power that is given to you from on high. He said clearly, I lay my life down. I lay my life down. Understand this. There's two people in here. There's the one that has totally submitted their heart and accepted Jesus and said, Lord, I accept your sacrifice. And then there is the other person who is not. And I pray that when we leave this place today that you have, that if you were thinking about it, that if you were considering it, that you will really, really realize he died for your sins. When we look at the cross, why is it good news? Why is it that, that, that Paul continues to remind them about this grace? Because this is where God offers us all of these wonderful things. This is where God offers us this gift of salvation. This is where God, when we look at the cross, we don't just, look, we, we, we saw that cross, and, and I don't know if when you walked in, you noticed there was a screen with like three crosses on it, and they were empty crosses. I want you to know that just like there's an empty cross, there's an empty tomb, amen? I want you to understand that Jesus died for our sins so that way you could have life. So when we look at the cross, what does the cross mean to us? It's not just a place of condemnation where sin was condemned, but it is also a place that God offers us some things. While Jesus was hanging upon that cross, he said some words that were very important. And the first word that Jesus communicated when he was on that cross, he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Understand that. He, Jesus hanging on the cross after all of this. And listen, here's, here's the truth. The truth is, I don't think that the movie does enough justice to what Jesus went through. And the beating that he went through and what he was experiencing and all the, look, Jesus is hanging on that cross in agony of body. He, he, he has been beaten beyond, I mean, beyond anything that we can imagine. And hanging on that cross, he says, Father, he looks down. Now, now, mind you, you, you got to picture this just like it was. He's hanging up on that cross, and it's not like he's there alone with just him and a couple of soldiers. There is an angry mob of people that are there who have been walking with him and, ch and, and chanting and all, of, all this whole time. So when this crucifixion has happened, this is like ESPN back in those days. Hello. They, they didn't have TV. They, so they, when they saw this stuff, they went and watched this barbaric behavior. And remember, the reason why the, why, why, why the Jewish officials wanted this because they wanted to make an example. You follow him, that's where you're going to be. On the cross, the first thing he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. So the first thing that he says, he asks for our forgiveness. That's what he does for us. The second conversation that he's having here, he has it. He, he, he's looking down at his mother. He's communicating, looking, look, looking at his mom down there because he's like, wow, my mom is watching me just, you know, they have Mary in there and all that and whatever. But the fact of the matter is she was going through some torment. Any mother in here can understand, can relate to what she must have been feeling watching her son go through that. The cross was barbaric. And Jesus hung up there. And he tells his mom, behold your son. He tells his, 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 his disciple that he loved, behold your mother. Take care of her. Again, on the cross, not being selfish, not thinking about himself. The next conversation that Jesus has is with these two thieves that he's hung in between. And if we would have kept watching the movie, you would have seen the two thieves and the conversation that was there. And while one thief is there and saying, if you're God, come down, get us down from here. The other thief was like, look, we deserve this. He doesn't. You not fear God? And he asked Jesus to remember him. And Jesus looks at him and tells him, he tells him, surely you'll be in paradise with me today. 
continually offering forgiveness. On that cross, he is forsaken. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For the first time ever, he's experiencing what? A separation. Judicial separation. God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, we can't be there. Just imagine this for a moment. Just imagine you, the people that you love the most, the people who are the dearest to you. Imagine you laying in a hospital bed after you were just beaten beyond whatever, something bad happened to you, and when they walk into the room and they look at you, they say, oh, we don't know him, and they walk away from you. Imagine the feeling you would have. That's the feeling that Jesus had for us. All of this he went through on the cross so that we, that way we could have forgiveness. That's the reason why the Apostle Paul tells the church and reminds them. He's reminding them, saying, man, you must have forgotten what Jesus did for you. You must have forgotten what he did. When we, when we in our life, in our day today, we think, oh, man, I can't get up early to pray. Man, you haven't, you haven't suffered the bloodshed like that. Oh, you know, I, I, can't, I can't stay up, you know, to, to, read, in, you know, to, to read the word. I, I can't go out there and advance. Like, Wait a second. This is what Jesus did for us on that cross. When we're looking at this cross, there's forgiveness there. And so I just want to say a couple of things here because here's the, here's the ultimate question. The ultimate question is this. Has the gospel taken full effect in your life? That's the question. Has the gospel taken full effect in your life? I'm not asking you if you're perfect because none of us are perfect. None of us are going to be perfect until that day that we are saved up in glory. But has the gospel taken full effect in your life? In other words, are you truly devoted to him? Truly walking with him? The cross offers us some things. The first thing that the cross offers us clearly in this gospel, the cross offers us forgiveness. Forgiveness. Some of us need forgiveness. Some of us have issues forgiving ourselves. We think we're so horrible. We've done so much bad stuff. God can't forgive us. Did you see what happened there? He forgave you. Forgiveness. The cross offers us forgiveness. God is not going to punish you after he punished his own son. Hear me. Forgiveness in the cross. The other thing that's there in the cross is freedom. When you're communicating to people, these are things that, you know what, if it's not for you, you should be, you should be taking some mental notes that this is what you're communicating to people. And if this is for you, then you need to know that God is offering this to you. He offers forgiveness, and then he offers us freedom. He offers us freedom, freedom from our past. And then when I say our past, freedom from the things that have happened to us, not just the things that we've done. See, because when we look at the cross, it's not only about what we've done. What about the ones that have hurt us? What about the hurts that have happened to us through other people, the things that have happened? What about when you were a little kid and you were raped? What about that? In the cross, there's freedom from that. There's freedom from whatever you were feeling, whatever shame, whatever hurt, whatever abandonment you were feeling, those things are done. What about, what, what about the, the people that have hurt you? There is freedom from that. By the same product, forgiveness. You receive his forgiveness, you forgive others, and you walk in freedom because of what? The power of the cross. Whatever you've done in the past, whatever's happened in the past, there's freedom from that. And the last thing that the cross offers us is it offers us fullness. Fullness. There's two things that, 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 that entail this fullness. And one of them is, 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 I mean, they're all amazing, but this one is righteousness. When you talk about fullness, the cross offers us righteousness. 
The cross says, you, me, God's enemy. Now, God sends his son, dies in our place, and what happens? We're called righteous. We're called sons. We're called daughters. We're given a right standing. Before, we had no right to stand before God. Now, we can stand in his presence. That's amazing that this God that hates sin, this God that is holy, while we were his enemies, sends his son to die in our place so we can have what? So we can have forgiveness, so we can have freedom, so we can have this fullness, so we can be called righteousness. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says, He who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of him who died for us. But that's not where it ends, because the second part to fullness is he fills us with his Holy Spirit. He fills us with his Holy Spirit. He died for what? Jesus told his disciples, it's better for me if I go. It's better for you if I go because my father can send the spirit. He can send the promise. And so now as Christians, we're not left alone to just look at the cross and hopeless. No, we're able to look at the cross and say, God, there's forgiveness. There's freedom. There's fullness in him. And that's what God wants every one of creation to experience. But specifically everyone that is in here. So the first essential thing, the thing of utmost importance, is for us to understand the gospel. I pray that this will be your motivation for everything you do, because everything we do as Christians should come out of this understanding. It shouldn't come out of a manipulation. You shouldn't pray more because we're calling prayer. We shouldn't pray more because, of, no, you shouldn't come to church more because, no, you should do these things because of what Jesus did for you, period, period. The motivation for everything we do should be because he did it for us. And it becomes a delight. It's not a duty. So I'll stand to our feet, please.